Good morning. It's again a wonderful privilege for me to come share the word of God with you this morning. I really am excited this morning. And um, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be able to um, share the word of God with you. Yesterday, I got a message from Brother Denver, and he said although he had arrived safely, um, his bags had not arrived when I communicated with him. So you can imagine what an inconvenience this is. So please be praying for him so that he gets his bags, because if he does not, um, um, I think two weeks' um, worth of clothing is in his back, so he might have to do some serious shopping, which is not desirable. And again, I, I don't know if we welcomed um, Lucas' parents. They're here all the way from PE, so uh, before you go home, please say hi to them. They've just come to see their sons here in Cape Town. Let's open the Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through to 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to hear your word. Father God, we just pray that you'll be with us, that you open our eyes and our ears so that we will see beautiful things therein. Pray, Father God, that you quieten our hearts, that you quieten our often complaining, murmuring hearts, to hear you speak. So speak to us, Father. We pray for your spirit to help us understand your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, the title of my message is 
experiencing supernatural peace while awaiting Christ our Savior. Experiencing supernatural peace while awaiting Christ our Savior. I want to show you from this text that Paul wants believers or Christians to be assured that they can indeed experience supernatural peace in a chaotic world while awaiting Christ our Savior. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. We do know that this is one of the prison epistles. So Paul writes from prison. Yet despite the fact that he is imprisoned, his mood is not somber. He's full of joy, as we will see. As a matter of fact, scholars often describe this epistle as an epistle of joy. The outline is as follows. In chapter 1, he writes about his experiences. For example, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he details some of his experiences in prison. And number two, he writes about the people of Christ and he sort of puts Christ on a pedestal to look at as an example of our conduct. Two, chapter 2, verse 5, he will say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And chapter 3, he writes about the pursuit of Christ. 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on to what the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And chapter 4, where we will focus on this morning, he exhorts Christians and he gives a number of exhortations which we will look at. So he draws conclusion, he draws conclusions as a result of what he's just presented previously. For example, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
And in verses 1 through to 9, he will say, In light of the coming of Christ, how are we supposed to live as Christians? In light of the second coming of Christ, what manner of life are we supposed to have as Christians? And that's what we'll be looking at. And the things that I want us to look at are seven points, seven points that Paul says to convince us that peace in this chaotic world, supernatural peace, the peace of God is possible, that we can attain the peace of God. We can have peaceful lives in this life, in this often chaotic life. And he gives these ex exhortations, in, and he, he says, if you want to know or if you want to experience the supernatural, uh, supernatural peace of God, these are the things that you're supposed to be doing. Number one, be a solid Christian. Be a solid Christian. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. And we'll see the next one is, be a peaceable Christian. Verses two and three. Number three is, be a joyful Christian. Verse four. Be a gentle Christian. Verse five. Be a prayerful Christian. Verses six and seven. Be a right-thinking Christian. Verse eight. Be a learning, practicing, and emulating Christian, verse 9. The first thing that I want us to look at is be a solid Christian. So in verse 1, we see that Paul instructs the believers in Philippi, and he says to them, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he answers the question, how are you supposed to stand? And the answer would be, stand firm. Stand firm. This is not the first time that Paul is saying this in this chapter. He said this before in verse 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does this verb mean? What does standing firm mean? It, it, what does standing firm mean? It means that the Christian has got to be solid and not fluid. It's got to be steady and focused and strong in what they have believed. And in the midst of the enemies of the cross that Paul speaks about in 3.18, that have the potential to sway believers, to make them lose focus, he instructs them to stay firm. He knows that if they're not focused, if they're not steady, 
there's the, there's the likelihood that they may, may be swayed. There's a, there's a threat of being swayed. And I think this applies to us as well. In a world where there's many presuppositions, many philosophies, many ideas, many prescriptions in terms of how to order our lives, Paul would say to us, as he has said to Philippians, stay firm, stay firm. Do not be fluid. Do not be tossed to and fro by ideas and philosophies of the world. Stay focused on what you have known. The word fluid has become an endearing world, an endearing word in our time. People describe themselves as fluid. I'm neither male nor female. I can be whoever I want to be. And the world claps hands and says, this is how we're supposed to live. But Paul says, no, you've got to stand firm. You've got to be steady. You've got to um, focus and be strong in what you have believed. Don't swing back and forth. Do not waver. Hold on. Hold on. And look at how he addresses them. Look at how he addresses them. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love, you are the object of my love. I long to see you. I long for you. In today's language, we'll say, I miss you. He misses these because he loves them. He's got so much affection for them. And he does not want them to be swayed. And it's very interesting as well that the, these are Gentiles. These are, these are Gentiles that previously were not part of the commonwealth. And how Paul addresses them as the ones that I love, the ones that I long for, my joy the ones that give me joy, the ones that I consider my crown, my victor. When I look at you, Philippian church, you are my joy and my crown. Those that had not become part of the commonwealth of Israel have now become part of the kingdom of God. And this all demonstrates by how much he loves them. And you can see the unity. You can see the theme of unity beginning to develop as we will see. And I must say, the way Paul describes these people, we must think, or as Christians, we must come to a point where we realize that fights among ourselves are scandalous. Fights should be scandalous. We have gotten used to conflict so much that we think it's normal to have conflict, unresolved conflict in the church. But how Paul considers these people that he had not known previously, that he was not related to, is remarkable. They have become his brothers and his sisters. 
They have become the very people that give him joy. They have become the people that he does life with and he longs to see. They have become his crown. And that is why he'll say to them, stand firm and do not be swayed. The second thing that I want to show you is in verses 2 and 3, be a peaceable Christian. Be a peaceable Christian. Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. There seems to be conflict between two women here, Yodia and Syntyche. The Bible does not tell as much about them, but these people had labored side by side with Paul, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers, the rest of the believers. And now there seems to be conflict. We don't know the nature of conflict because Paul does not say what's the cause of conflict. But there is conflict nevertheless. There is disagreement. And this disagreement is threatening disunity among believers. And what Paul says to these two women is, I'm appealing to you. So he appeals to them individually. So look at verse 2. He does not say, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. It says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. I appeal to you individually. You two ladies who are, not, who are not agreeing, who are disagreeing, I'm appealing to you individually to agree, to have the same mind, to agree in the Lord. I want you to have peace. I want you to unite because without that unity, there can't be peace in the church. But if you don't unite, the division will spill over. The conflict will spill over into the church. It and it might divide the church. But as if that was not enough, he says, verse 3, And I ask you to, companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. So he says, these two women must agree. But also, he enlists the help of a fellow worker. We don't know who this fellow worker is. But he says, I want you to help broker unity and peace and agreement between these two women. I want you to help them agree. It's not enough that I'm asking them individually. I'm appealing to them individually to agree. I want you to be involved and help them agree as well. Why? Because unity is important. Unity in the church is important. If we are going to proclaim the gospel in the community in which we find ourselves, in which God has placed us, we're going to have to be united because this unity is going to detract us from the task at hand. If we're not united, what we do is we spend so much time in the squabbles and we don't do what the church exists in the community for. So that is why Unity is very important. 
And Paul would say, you two women agree, but also you fellow worker, help these women to agree, help them settle their own differences. And also, you see, Paul does not get into the politics of who's right, who's wrong, who should, should, should go first, who should apologize first. He places the responsibility upon these two, two women to say, both of you are responsible to make sure that there is peace and unity. The third thing that I wanted to show you is for us to be able to attain peace in this chaotic world, we need to be joyful Christians. We need to be joyful Christians. Verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So here we see that Paul gives the command, the instruction for this church to rejoice in the Lord. And again, the question is, how often are they supposed to rejoice? He says, always. In other words, there's never a time that the church in Philippi should not be rejoicing. This should be a continuous thing. The thing that should characterize the church in Philippi or Philippi is joy, rejoicing. And to emphasize the command that he has given to this church, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And he said this kind of thing in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice again and again and again and again without stopping. Rejoice until the Lord comes. There are no loopholes here. There are no exceptions here. There are no justifications for why the church can't rejoice. The church has got to be known for its joy. The church has got to be characterized. One of the emblems of the church should be joy. It should be joy. And this does not mean that there won't be any woes that the church experiences. This does not mean that there won't be problems and deaths and troubles and sufferings and persecutions. It does not mean the absence of these things. It means that in the present of these things, the church has got to rejoice. The church has got to rejoice in sickness, in humiliating persecutions, in excruciating stresses. However long we live, the church has got to be a rejoicing church. In every circumstance, the church has got to be rejoicing. Why would Paul give this instruction? Because we are a complaining people. 
we complain about the weather, we complain about crime, we complain about children, we complain about poverty, we complain about many other things, relationships. And yes, some of these things we supposed to, some of these things are worrisome. Some of, you know, we can't just sit here and say, well, it's okay to experience crime, it's okay to experience poverty. Some of these things are warranted. But Paul says, even in the midst of these things, we've got to be rejoicing. Even in the midst of these things, we've got to be rejoicing. And remember, Paul himself is writing from prison. He has every reason to complain. He has any, every reason to believe that God has dealt him a bad hand. And yet, he would give this command to rejoice, and he himself is rejoicing as he writes this letter. So the question is, are we a rejoicing church? Are we known for rejoicing? When we gather together in small groups, when we gather together corporately, are we known for rejoicing? Is our worship delightful, showing or demonstrating that we have been saved and we have been rescued? From the wrath of God, and we rejoice in our salvation, in our counseling, in our one-to-one discipleship. Are we a rejoicing people? Are we a rejoicing people? The fourth thing that I want to show you is in verse five. For us to be able to know and experience supernatural peace, we must be gentle Christians. We must be gentle Christians. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness can be Translated, gentle, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So those who are rejoicing are also gentle. Those who are rejoicing are also gentle. Gentleness means not insisting on every right of the letter of the law or custom. It means yielding, gentle, kind, courteous. Tolerate. Someone described it this way. He said, a gentle person is the person who by choice and habit does what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. He's content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. And what does this remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, being God, did not consider himself equal to God at that point in time, although he had always, will always be God. But he thought about you and I, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is what Paul is saying. For us to be able to know the supernatural peace of God, we've got to be gentle people. We've got to be gentle people. We can't insist on our rights all the time. We've got to be willing to forego some of our rights. We've got to be able to be willing to suffer for the sake of our brothers and our sisters. We've got to be willing to take less than we deserve for the sake of the elect. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. And we do know that gentleness is so important that it is one of the qualifications of leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 3. We've got to be gentle. Christians have got to be characterized by gentleness. And often our ability to be gentle is tested when we are under pressure, when people treat us unfairly, when people treat us unjustly. That's when we see what's in our hearts. That's when what's in our hearts is squeezed out. But Paul would say, cultivate gentleness, be gentle. And Jesus Christ himself describes himself as gentle and lowly. The fifth thing that I want us to look at is be a prayerful Christian. Be a prayerful Christian. Verses 6 and 7. Let me start in 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul here starts by saying, the Lord is at hand. Some people would argue that he means proximity. He's very close, he's present. But given the fact that Paul in this letter speaks a lot about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would argue that he speaks about the Lord returning, the second returning of Christ. I think that's what he refers to here. And he says, in light of the fact that the Lord is at hand, that we're closer to glory than when we began, do not be anxious about anything. He says, the fact that we're closer to glory, the fact that the Lord is about to return, that should be the motivation for us to not be anxious 
about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. I was looking at the most prescribed psychiatric drugs in the world. And the number one thing is antidepressants. And the close second is anti-anxiety medication. The world is anxious. The world is anxious. But Christians are anxious as well. Christians are just as anxious. And Paul here gives an antidote for anxiety and he says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Nothing should make you anxious. And this is the antidote. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, no be made known to God. He says, the thing that would cure your anxiety is when in every circumstance, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, your requests are made known to God. I mean, simply put, Paul is saying, pray. Pray. Are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you fretful? Here is the cure. Pray. 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 But how are you supposed to pray? How are you supposed to pray? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I want us to look at some of these words. Prayer. Prayer is expressing the, what's in your head, what's in your mind and in your, in your heart, communicating with God about what is really in your mind and in your heart. So Paul says, whatever it is that you're going through, Communicate that which is in your head and in your mind. Communicate that to God. And this is very important because the tendency is when we are facing trouble, when we're facing stuff, we retreat into some corner somewhere and we murmur and we complain and the cycle just goes on and on and on and on and on without ending. And Paul is saying, you can stop that cycle. Pray. Communicate the thoughts of your mind and your heart to God. Supplication. The one who comes in humility, bows down, takes an inferior position and subject themselves to God. And he says, with thanksgiving, let you Requests be known, be made known to God. And I just thought, why with thanksgiving? Why with thanksgiving? And I think there's something about thanksgiving that helps us to catalog what the Lord is doing. As we pray and we're giving 
God the thanks that, is, that he is deserving. We are able to catalog the things that he's done in the past, the things that he's doing in the present, and that gives us hope for the future. And that is why we sing the song, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what the Lord has done, count your blessings, name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. As you catalog the things that God has done, the sweeter and bitter providences, the act of salvation, our own salvation, the act of deliverance, healing, and all these things that God has given us, we're able to know that God is in control. He's sovereign, and everything comes from the hand of a good and loving God, and therefore we can endure. Why? Because he walks with us. Unless we're offering prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we are complaining. And that robs us of the supernatural peace that God can give us. Paul says here, do not be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing should make you anxious. Nothing should make you anxious. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Stop being fretful. Stop being too concerned about things. This anxiety arises from one who's full of cares, especially about the future, and is often distracted. One person writes, anxiety robs us of the peace that our Lord promises. It gets our thoughts to be all over the place. It magnifies our cares and problems and makes God seem very small in comparison. Where there is anxiety, there's little or no prayer at all. Anxiety is that thing that makes us lie awake at night. It is that thing that makes us unable to breathe. We can't breathe. We feel overwhelmed. We have a knot in our tummy. We cannot experience peace when we are anxious. And this is the very command that Jesus gives in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, when he addressed these people who had an undue concern, concern for food, drink, and clothing. And these things are the mark of a pagan world. This is what the world worries about. And Jesus will say, do not worry about these things. Do not worry about these things. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be given unto you. Concern yourself with the business of the kingdom. Be prayerful. Be prayerful. As you pray, you're demonstrating your trust in God, the one who is with you, the one who is all-knowing, the one who carries you even in times of 
difficulty. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I'll come back to verse 7 together with the last bit of verse 9 and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guide your minds in Christ Jesus. And the next thing that I want to show you is Verse 8. I lost my place in the notes. Be a right thinking Christian. Be a right thinking Christian. Paul writes, finally, brothers, in verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Be a right-thinking Christian. You've often heard people say, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. If you eat junk, the body will soon show that you have been eating a lot of junk. This is a similar thing here. If you're not thinking the right thoughts, if you let your mind wander into useless, ungodly, unholy thoughts, your life will soon show. If you're not pondering on what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's anything, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you do not ponder on these things, your life will soon spiral out of control. If your mind is not guided and controlled and subjected to the word of God, if your mind is not guided by the word of God, it'll soon show. It'll soon show. Because when you're not rooted in the word of God, when you're not thinking and pondering and thinking seriously about what is honorable, what is good and excellent and pure, what is lovely and what is commendable, what is excellent. If you're not thinking seriously and meditating on the word of God, soon your life will spiral out of control. And that is why Paul will say, think about these things. Think about these things. The command is to ponder, to seriously consider these things. Not just to read and, or skim over and not really think about them and, and, and apply them as we will see um, in the next verse when he says, practice these things. But he says, think seriously about these things. And I think, again, 
if you find a Christian that is not experiencing peace, you find a Christian that is not, or that has anxiety, that is anxious all the time, you will find a Christian that is not meditating on the Word of God. And as we meditate and take in the truth of God's Word, as we ponder and apply it in our lives and different situations in our lives, as we think about the God of the Scripture, God gives us peace through His Word. And so that is why Paul would say, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything that ex that's excellent, that is worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. And the last thing that I want to show you is verse 9. Be a practicing Christian. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So he says, not only are you hearing and seeing, I want you to practice these things. In other words, I want you to obey. I want you to obey. And how do you show that obedience? You practice what is being instructed. That's what Paul is saying here. Whatever you have learned from me, the things that I've taught you, the things that I've given you, the things that you've heard, the things that you've seen in me, practice these things. And Paul is speaking in his apostolic authority here. He's speaking in his apostolic authority here. And he's saying, as one sent by God, Whatever I have said, whatever I've practiced, you too practice these things. And today, we've got the Word of God. Whatever we hear, whatever we taught, whatever we read, whenever we ponder on Scripture, we are to practice these things. And see what the promise is, and the God of peace will be with you. Previously, in verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is interesting because first he speaks about the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guarding the hearts and the minds in Christ Jesus. And then next he speaks about the God of peace will be with you. This is a military language in verse 7, um, the, the, the God is, it'll, you know, the, 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 the peace of God, the peace of God will, will, will guard. It will be a wall, a shield, a wall of defense. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, if you do these things that I've just described, if you do these things, Peace does not come by itself. The supernatural peace of God does not come by itself. Do these things. Do these things. And as you do, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds 
and your hearts. And our minds and our hearts need to be guarded because they're all over the place if they're not. If there's no shield that guards and protects them, then they're all over the place. We can't experience the peace of God. And that is why Paul would say, do these things and the peace of God which surpasses, which is not understandable. We can't understand it. It's beyond human comprehension. will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. And the next thing it says, the God of peace will be with you. You can't separate the peace of God and the God of peace. Think about it. Where the peace of God is, the God of peace is as well. So not only will, will you be given this supernatural peace, you will have the God of peace with you all the time. I was looking at the happiness index of the world. So the answering the question, what are some of the happiest countries in the world? And Scandinavian countries and you know your Finland and, and all those places, Denmark and Sweden, they the top five. So apparently Finland is the happiest place in the world. People are happy. People are happy, very happy. And I think Finland has got a population of about 5 million people. And so what I did is I checked the statistics about depression in Finland. And it's interesting that in this happiest place in the world, 4 to 11% of people are depressed. 4 to 11% of the population is depressed. So just a little over 10% of the population. Is it 10%? Well, anyway, never mind my, my stats. But, but you know, uh, 4 to 11%, um, yeah, 4 to 11% of the population is depressed. And the question is, how is it possible that in this place that is supposedly the happiest place in the world, people are depressed? So many people need mental health care facilities. And I think the truth is, because there isn't any country that will give the peace of God. There isn't a single country, whether it prospers, zero crime, um, booming economy, um, great schools and universities, research institutions, sporting facilities. These do not give peace. They do not give peace. That kind of peace is fleeting. It's not permanent. But the peace that Paul is speaking about, it's a peace that is abiding, a peace that is sustained, a peace that goes on and on and on, regardless of 
the circumstances. And this is the peace that only God can give. This is the supernatural peace of God. There's no country that can give it. There's no mother that can give it. There's no teacher, husband. There's no one that can give this peace. Only God can give this peace. And I want to speak to those who have not yet come to faith. I know you're doing many things to have some semblance of peace in your life. And I'm here to tell you, you will not experience peace. Because peace is first and foremost experienced with God. Unless you have peace with God, you are at war with the God of the universe. And therefore, you do not have peace. You've got every reason to worry. We read Romans 5. Therefore, we have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have peace. We have peace. It is the justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that brings about peace with God. And so there is an invitation for you to come and experience this supernatural peace. And that is why Matthew 6, Matthew 11, rather, 28, will say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you have not come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're being invited to come, to come to him, and he will give you rest. He instructs you to take his yoke upon you, to take his commandments upon you, and he will give you rest. He says, learn from me, learn from me, and you'll find rest for your soul. Your yearning soul, your soul that's restless will find rest only in Christ. So, in conclusion, do you want to experience supernatural peace? Be a solid Christian. Be a peaceable Christian. Be a joyful Christian. Be a gentle Christian. Be a prayerful Christian. Be a right-thinking Christian. Be a learning or practicing Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray, Father God, that we'll pursue this peace that's available to us. We pray, Father God, that you will help us, give us the grace to be able to carry out these instructions that we find in Philippians 4. We know, Father God, that on our own, we're not able to carry them out. So we need your grace. We need your enabling spirit to help us to desire to carry them out. Father God, we do want to experience your peace because it is promised to us. Help us to desire it. 
Help us, Father God, to have the faith that if we are able to practice these things, you'll give it to us. We're so thankful for this morning, Father. We just pray that you will save those that are not saved, that you'll be merciful to us, them. Now, Father God, that you'll subdue their hearts so that they will come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for today. We pray that we'll continue to love your word, to read it, and to practice it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.